You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Peer Pleasure with Dewey Halpas on Adobe Radio and Jabberjaw Media. My name is Dewey, your host with the most, bringing you great content week after week. And this week, again, we have a great guest, Mr. Brian Cook from These Arms Are Snakes, from Botch, from Russian Circles, and from most recently, Sumac, with Aaron Turner, a previous guest on the show. All his bands have been amazing. We talk about it in the episode, just how someone can have so many great bands and really not a bad not a bad seed in the lot. I mean, he's got a fantastic catalog. Uh, Brian's the bass player, and he is absolutely one of the most creative bass players I've ever heard. Uh, we do definitely talk about it a lot on the episode. His sound, his tone, uh, how he goes about songwriting. All that good stuff. Uh, Brian has been requested by multiple, multiple listeners over the course of the show. And, uh, you know, I really like to be able to get on the guests that people want to hear. And Brian was on my list. Uh, but I don't know why I hadn't reached out to him previously. Uh, but after getting so many emails, uh, I definitely hit him up through Aaron Turner. Um, and Brian graciously came on and, and uh, we had a blast. It was a really good conversation. Uh, so we're going to get right into it here, and uh, I want to let you guys know we are launching the Pleasure Seekers Club Patreon on August 28th, 2017. We're going to have all kinds of packages on there, different tiers to support the show. Really, really excited to have this going. Uh, we put a lot of work into it, and I'm stoked to see it hit the world. Uh, once again, that is our Peer Pleasure Podcast Patreon, the Pleasure Seekers Club. Uh, you'll be able to check it out when it launches on August 28th, 2017, and check out all the packages. We're going to be posting some stuff beforehand. I think we're going to post a special episode talking just about the Patreon, uh, like a midweek episode that doesn't really count as a real one, but it'll have more information. I'm stoked for you guys to hear that. 
So we are on peerpleasurepodcast.com. We are on Instagram. We are on Twitter. We are at peerpleasurepod at gmail.com. If you have any questions for me, concerns, guest ideas, like I say, these emails get read. I definitely try to respond as quickly as I can. And a lot of times we're able to get these guests on that you want. So definitely hit us up with that. I love getting all the feedback, and it really feels good to put an episode out that was requested so many times. So hopefully everyone enjoys it. Um, But without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Brian Cook from Sumac, Russian Circles, These Arms Are Snakes, and Botch. Yeah, no, 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 uh, no issues on, on this end. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you coming on, man. I, I, uh, I know it's kind of out of the blue to hit you up uh, through Aaron, and um, but I'd gotten a ton. I mean, you had been on my list of people I wanted to talk to, but I just kept getting requests over and over again. Hey, have you talked to Brian Cook? Do you talk to Brian Cook? And I was like, man, I'm going to reach out because I knew you were in Sumac with Aaron, and and I'd had him on the show, and and uh, he's like, yeah, man, hit him up and. And uh, and see, and I appreciate you taking the time. I know New York New York times a little later than here, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. No worries. I'm I'm, I'm like out and about on the street okay. now, so hopefully the uh, I'll try to stay away from uh, traffic areas. But uh, but yeah, just uh, just holler if it's getting too uh, too noisy on my end. Right on, man. Well, uh, we'll go ahead and get started then. Uh, welcome to the show, Brian Cook, bass player for Sumac and Russian Circles. These arms are snakes. Botch, Roy, I mean, so many bands. <laughs> I could just keep listing them, but uh, welcome to the show, my friend. Oh, yeah, thanks for having me. I uh, wanted to start things out kind of in a general way, I guess, but but where you grew up and, and kind of what your childhood was like as far as uh, coming up and getting into music, and, and were you in the Northwest? Uh, no, I was a military kid, so I kind of bounced around a little bit uh, uh, in a... My early childhood, you know, like I, I was born in Kansas and lived in outside of D.C. and, and lived very briefly in Washington State like, when I was really young. But and most of most of my school years, I was in uh, I was in Hawaii. Uh, my dad worked out at Tripler uh, for the Army, so from kindergarten until my 
my freshman year of high school, I lived on Oahu in a small town called Kailua that is now sort of uh, gentrified in the wake of tourism and things like that. But uh-huh. at the time, it was like a little tiny beach town that uh, no one really talked about. Uh, and I didn't move into the Northwest until yeah, until my sophomore year of high school. Uh, yeah, uh, kind of discovered music uh, in Hawaii, uh, mainly, I guess, through skateboarding and uh, you know, like television shows like 120 Minutes and Postmodern MTV and things like that. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, got kind of into a lot of sort of the, the pre pre grunge uh alternative stuff like uh like REM and Pixies and Amber Van Beethoven and then heard things like Faith No More and Red Hot Chili Peppers and then kind of start through like the skateboarding culture and through, you know, like the music section of Thrasher and stuff, you know, found out about Dead Kennedys and stuff like that. And uh yeah, went and saw Fugazi uh back in 91 at the University of Hawaii, and that was kind of like my my holy shit moment. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, that kind of, that was, yeah, that was sort of the beginning of of really being, uh, maybe not necessarily infatuated with punk, because, I, you know, I had exposure to it prior to that, but that was sort of the first time where it felt very attainable, like something you could actually be a part of. I think, you know, living in Hawaii, uh, so many things just felt so distant. You know, you just felt like like punk and being in a band and all that stuff was for people that lived on the mainland. You know, there wasn't really a... Uh, there, there were bands and there's shows in Hawaii, but it just felt like the idea of actually doing something with it and going out and making a record and touring was for people that didn't live on the islands, so... Fugazi was the first time I was like, oh shit, like there is some sort of actual connection to the mainland with music. And that was, that was sort of the defining moment of my, my young life, I guess. Man, that's, that's, it's insane how many people, you know, cite Fugazi for one as, as that, that all shit moment. But the fact that you grew up on, you know, or, or spent your, your school years, at least the beginning of them, you know, where you're actually starting to come into your own on an island where not a lot of bands tour, uh, and you, you know, your first kind of exposure to that was Fugazi. That's kind of a huge, a huge jump there from probably seeing, you know, 10 or 15, you know, subpar bands into, you know, stumbling across Fugazi. That's quite an interesting ride there. Yeah, you know, I think it's probably the same for like a lot of people at that age that live in sort of isolated areas. I mean, even if it's just like, you know, living out in the suburbs in a lot of cases where it's, you know, you take what you can get. And so like my first four shows were Gazi, Dinosaur Jr., Social Distortion, and Pantera. And a lot of that was just like, I wasn't like a huge Pantera fan, but I was like, well, what else am I going to do? I'm going to go see Pantera, you know? And then, yeah. I mean, that show was totally bonkers, out of control. And, you know, I wasn't like a huge metal metalhead at the time, but Pantera had enough sort of a weird hardcore energy about them that, that, you know, I was, I was pretty enthralled by it. So I think, you know, just having 
having sort of limited access to things, I think, makes you treasure the few things that come your way, if not much more, but it also means you get like this weird hodgepodge of, of you know, primary influences or, you know, like, I don't know. Just, I feel like it's a different thing if you grow up in, you know, the Lower East Side and all you see is like Warzone and agnostics run every weekend or it's like, <laughs> yeah, you love hardcore, you know, but if, yeah. if your choices are limited and it's like, uh, I guess I'm going to go to go Ska show. I don't know what the fuck Ska is, but I'm going to go see it. Yeah. Like, ah, I guess I like, I guess I like Skank and Pickle now. <laughs> this been fucking terrible. I guess I just have to buy their tape to the, who else is coming to Hawaii, you know, so. Sure. Uh, yeah. Well, dude, that's hilarious because I grew up in Alaska, so kind of a similar situation, and the bands you mentioned, my first show ever in my life was Social Distortion on the White Light, White Heat, White Trash record with Chuck Biscuits on drums. That was my first concert oh. ever, and then it was, there was Fugazi, Pantera, White Zombie, and, uh, <laughs> uh, who was, uh, Agent Orange, and okay, yeah. Fishbone. Like, that was my yep. music that I would go see live because it was who was coming. I mean, Ozzy came every year and I never went. Uh, you know, Red Hot Chili Peppers canceled when Anthony Kiedis broke his wrist. Like, Stone Temple Pilots canceled twice because of rehab. Like, it was, but that was all you had. I totally feel what you're coming from here because we had a very similar, similar experience. Well, yeah, I feel like all those bands are probably, you know, Bands that could thrive on like the B and C markets, so they're like, well, let's go every place we can, you know. Whereas, you know, the the the, the more sort of esteemed bands, you know, the bands that you, could, you would still want to brag about seeing now, tended to be like, ah, now we'll just major markets, and yeah, it'll be our bread and butter. So, yeah, you gotta you gotta respect the bands that like ventured out like that. Sure, absolutely. Have you tried to find that Fugazi set on their live series on Discord? Uh, Discord? Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. I, I waited for years for that to finally pop up, and it, it popped up maybe three years ago, and yeah, downloaded it. Yeah, it was, uh, it was kind of the, one of the, I mean, it was a great show in a lot of ways, but I remember, uh, you know, they kicked out some people and did the $5 refund, which blew my mind, you know, the 14 year old, yep. but, uh, there's also a, a great moment where, uh, people were yelling minor threat, you know, between songs and, and Ian was just like, yeah, that was my old band. Like there's three other people on stage, like knock that shit off. Yeah. It's rude. And it was one of those things where it was like, Oh, that's so, that's so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> like he's not even trying to be polite. He's just like, shut the fuck up. Yeah. That guy is someone yelled out, his own man. Yeah, and then someone yelled out Nation of Ulysses, and I was like, I don't even know what that is, so I'm going to look it up. All right. <laughs> Nation of Ulysses. Um, the one time heckling helped someone out and hurt someone at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> he got something to check out and, and totally pissed off Ian McKay. I, I had him on the show a few months back, and I brought up the Anchorage show that I tried to find uh, audio from it from buddies of mine and couldn't find it. Now, I felt bad. And he's like, well, just last weekend, someone sent it to me. So it's going to be up soon, but I have not I have not been able to download it yet. But, man, cool, yeah. what an undertaking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, uh, yeah, that whole – that whole process just seems so 
borderline obsessive compulsive. I mean, I'm glad they're doing it, but it's just like, God damn, that's so much fucking work. Yeah. Gotta be fucking tiring. And you think he does it mostly himself. It's insane. I, oh, I wouldn't have the patience, but to have that much documentation of what you've done would be cool in the end, I think. But the process would be just mind numbing to, to go through it all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I sometimes kick myself for not doing a better job of like at least like tracking shows, you know. But but what do you do? <laughs> sure, sure. Well, were you were you when you got into you know playing music? Were you a guitar player that uh, you know moved over to bass, or was bass always your thing, or kind of what you started with and kept with? Uh, bass is always my thing, um, mainly because. Uh, I'm, I'm left-handed, and uh, I started playing uh, in when I was still in Hawaii. And um, you know, for music classes in school, we always had to play the ukulele, and there was only right-handed ukuleles. So that kind of like forced, literally forced my hand a little bit. Uh-huh. But then when I wanted to, pick, you know, take up the bass, the options for music stores are so limited in Hawaii that it was like, well, I'm going to have to have to go with a right-handed instrument, you know, no matter what, just based on availability. So I figured bass would be uh, the easier option just because mm-hmm. fewer strings and, you know. Yeah. You can r- rarely hear bass anyway. So okay, I picked that really more out of just not being confident in uh, my ability to, to play. Although, you know, I, you know, I picked up guitar shortly afterwards and uh you know didn't have any idea what i was doing with that and i sort of thought that like all rock music was based around the you know if you ever get like a, a book of guitar chords and has you know the g major and a minor and all those things and those like sort of complicated or sort of folky finger arrangements for for the chords like i thought that was like how all rock music was written so when you i heard like helmet you know they're like laying down all these like fast riffs like how are they fucking like readjusting their fingers so fast for each chord i had no idea what power chords were i had no idea what drop tuning was so like guitar just seemed like impossibly hard uh just out of sheer ignorance on my part and you know being being a lefty so Bass, bass seemed like a a much more uh, attainable goal in that respect. Sure, sure, and I mean the the most impressive thing to me about and I've seen you with multiple bands, but uh, you know I came later. I I think the first time I saw you was with uh, these arms are snakes. Uh, I didn't ever see Botch. Um, we moved down from Alaska in two thousand and weren't really into going to a ton of shows at the time. And uh, I know I think you guys played oh the meow meow or something like that, and and we ended up missing okay. that show. But so I've seen you at these arms of snakes and Russian circles. Um, but your ability to texture the sound—I mean, you use so many. It seems like you use a lot of different fuzzes and overdrives, and um, but you have a good, really good grasp on it to where it's really tasteful, but. I mean, it hits you in the face. Like, it's it's definitely a force to be reckoned with. And that's one thing I noticed uh, immediately, even though even in These Arms Are Snakes, with both 
uh, both of you guys doing, you know, a lot of intricate work, I found myself watching your playing more. Um, it just seemed to grab me. And I, I'm a guitar player, so that was also – I thought about it afterwards too. Like, man, that bass player can play. And then as time went on, you know, seeing you in more, more and more things, it started to become uh, – I started to understand a lot more what you were doing and, and uh, listening to the records and picking things out. Um, I mean, you've just been in a lot of really great bands. And I had, uh, I had a, uh, uh, one of the people that wrote me want to have you on the show. I said, is there anything you want to ask? And he's like, how, (laughs) how does it feel having the Midas touch to where you've really not been notably in any bands that would say, Oh man, yeah, I was in that band, you know, it's all been bands that have done something huge as far as whether it being influence or being, you know, uh, just on the radar, you know, it's always been something really good with a lot of integrity um, to where people really gravitate, gravi- uh, gravitate towards that. I mean, is that something that's been something you've thought about or, or something that's, you know, you can kind of, I guess the, the main question is, do you just come up upon these bands or start these bands organically, or is it something that that really um, is thought about? Like we're going to do do this direction, we're going to sound like this. Um, you know, is I know it's kind of a confusing question, but um, you know, how is that on your end as far as as far as uh, how you come across these bands and and start these bands? Is it is it just uh, you know very structured, or is it like let's just see where it goes? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think, I mean, in, in the, in terms of fashion circles, it was you know, already a thing that existed. You know, I, mm-hmm. I came into it, uh, with everything else. Um, I, mean, I think there's usually some sort of vague, uh, idea, you know, some sort of like elements of this elements of that. Um, but they usually don't really amount to much. You know, I think, you sort of quickly learn what, what dynamic works with people and what, and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and sometimes the, the dynamic just doesn't work. You know, I've been in bands that don't go anywhere. Um, it's just that they literally don't go anywhere. So people don't know about them, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's not, not for lack of, uh, having failed experiments. Sure. I guess that uh, makes sense because you, the only bands we've heard of or seen, have been bands that have, you know, been successful because they've actually come out. I didn't know you'd been in a lot more bands. I kind of thought it was the same along, along the same lines as, as Julian, who wrote me the, the letter. Um, like this guy's just in some good fucking bands all the time, which, uh, you know, not always the case. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's definitely, you know, there's been, there's been failures, but I think, you know, I think what generally happens is, uh, you know, you come into something with a general idea of what you want to do, and then you quickly learn whether or not that actually works. But you at least have a premise, you know, or at least some sort of general guiding, uh, I don't know, guiding sort of creative impulse. Mm-hmm. And then uh, once you sort of find out whatever your strong points are, then you know, you, ideally you use that to your advantage and tell them something distinctive and, and cool so you know with, with these arms are snakes uh you know i that band was also already kind of going when i joined although they, they hadn't really gotten anywhere uh brian the guitar player was playing with a 
the original, or not the, the original, but the first recorded guitar player from the band Harkonnen, this guy Bill. Oh, okay. Uh, they were playing together um, with a drummer, and you know they already had the band name, and they and they already had this idea that they wanted to sound like Jesus Lizard meets Craw, you know, old Cleveland weird prog uh-huh. metal band. Um, so the day it was sort of announced that Botch was going to break up. Ryan came up and said, "Well, you don't have a band anymore. Do you want to join my band? We're going to." sound like Kron means Jesus Lizard. And I like Kron, I like Jesus Lizard, so I was like, okay. You know, I just had, you know, my band break up around me, so, you know, not going to waste any time doing something else. Sure. Uh, but, you know, the first couple practices, it was just it's like this incredibly complicated, really, really mathy, uh, sort of to the point of not really having any sort of feel or groove. It was just, you know, very... Uh, very mechanical and very complicated for the sake of being complicated mm-hmm. with the math riffing and uh, I had a few practices uh, where it just felt like there was no there was no like feeling behind it no, it wasn't like moving forward and uh, yeah it was, it was a drag and then Bill Bill quit because he was like well I'm not this, you know they were mainly his riffs, and he was like, you know, it's not going anywhere, and yeah. he didn't like what other people were bringing to the table, and you know, wound up where it was me and Joe and Ryan and Steve, and we didn't know what to do at that point because the guy that was writing the riffs had walked out, and uh, all of us had sort of been in bands, but we'd always been the dudes in the band that like took cues from other people, you know, I wasn't like the principal riff writer in Botch. Uh, it's just not the way that band wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was sort of the same for everyone else involved. And so there's a few months of just sort of aimlessly jamming and noodling. And I was kind of getting fed up and wanted to quit. But uh, I decided, you know, I'd give it one one more practice but I would actually go into practice with something and I'd just see if it like clicked with people and if people were able to like follow along with it and if, you know, people were into it. Uh-huh. So we went in with, uh, I think what song we went in with. I don't even remember, but I came to practice with something and everyone played along with it and it was cool. And then it was just kind of this realization that, you know, if people came in with, a skeleton to a song, like it quickly developed, you know, into something very new and very different, mm-hmm. but at least it developed into something. So that, that kind of just became the way these arms are snakes operated. It wasn't, uh, wasn't true to the vision of sounding like craw Jesus was there at all, but, uh, <laughs> it was exciting because it was like, you know, like Ryan's a really great guitar player, but Ryan, really likes just doing leads and sort of accentuating what other people do, uh-huh. which for me was like really awesome because it meant I could come up with a keyboard line or a bass line that I was excited about and he would just whip something out on top of it. And, you know, he was really comfortable with that role. It didn't feel like, you know, he had to rival the bass or anything like that. So, and Ryan, you know, with, with, would contribute riffs too. You know, I don't want to like downplay anyone's contribution, but it was 
I think a big part of that band's dynamic was that a lot of stuff was written around bass, which meant that it was a little bit more of a focus, which meant that it kind of had to be a bit more interesting. Sure. That's probably what I was picking out then when I first saw you guys, because I remember we were in Spokane, Washington, I think. I think you guys may have played a show that night. We were playing a show as well, and and they were talking about These Arms Are Snakes, and I was like, man, that's a cool name. And they're like, yeah, it's got people from Botch in it. I was like, oh, really? And then so it started to like peak my interest more and more before I first saw it, and which kind of brings me around to another question is is when when you're in bands like that, like I'm sure you've heard the term when a band describes themselves as botchy or you know mathy or or botch ish. Um, when you're in bands that are that influential on a scene that as small as the scene was so many bands were were influenced by that sound do you find it uh i guess easier to break another band as far as you know you already have kind of an established audience that's going to check it out uh versus a band just starting out on its own or do you think it hinders it because they're going to want another botch i think it's a little bit of both you know i think uh i think these are some these are the snakes kind of had a bit of a blessing and a curse with the way we started off because I think people were, you know, naturally curious on it just because it was, it was the whole ex-member factors. People yeah. wanted to check it out. Um, and, you know, Botch had kind of ended uh, really at, at the peak of our popularity, so I think there was some spillover from that in terms of people just being interested. Uh, I think... It's a, it was a little bit of a curse just because I think people were expecting it to be heavy in the same sort of way that Botch was, or the same, like, sort of full-throttled aggression all the time. And uh, that wasn't really interesting to any of us. You know, not not in the sense that I, you know, wanted to disown that sound. You know, I was still very proud of that band and, you know, being a part of it. But... um you know, Botch kind of hit a hit a dead end creatively and just didn't know how to make songs that were interesting to us anymore. And mm-hmm. I think one of the things was just that we didn't know how to, like, write songs in a more dynamic manner that didn't feel corny. I don't know. It's Botch was so much about uh, dissonance and just having really wrong note combinations that the create a sort of a new dynamic out of that because we couldn't really agree on a, on a way to go so with snakes it was exciting to like have quieter songs or have songs that weren't you know that weren't just all yelling you know sure um but you know we signed to jtree and you know we had a long weird band name and i think you know we were all like skinny kids with moppy hair so i think we were a lot of people just wrote us off as being like a like an a alternative press screamo band, you know. I had, I had friends, like good friends, coming up to me like on our very last LP, just saying like, "Oh, I always thought you guys were just like a shitty emo band. Like I never actually heard you." <laughs> like, I listen to the new record, and it's it's fucking cool. I'm like, "Oh yeah, thanks." You know, Jello Biafra used our band name in one of the spoken word pieces as an example of bad emo names. So it's like they're not an we're not an emo band. <laughs> like, have you heard of it? Like, if anything, like, I'm ripping off 
all the alternative tentacles bands. I'm ripping off all the bands that you put out. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I'm trying to sound like No Means No and fucking Steel Pool Bathtub and <laughs> fucking Victim's Family and Neurosis and Hack and like basically the entire like early 90s alternative tentacles roster. And you think we sound like an emo band? Like, <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I think there's a little bit of a curse involved. You know, at the same time, I think, uh, you know, I think it's hard being in a new band. I think it's especially hard being in a new band once you're over the age of like 25, because when you're younger than that age, you have this a social circle that's already going to be interested in whatever you do. I think mm-hmm. that was the case with Botch. You know, the first time Botch played out, everyone in our high school came to see us play, and I w- and I wasn't a popular person in high school. You know, I, I had like no friends, but it was an event that a band from someone's high school was playing a show somewhere. So everyone just went to see what it was about. And I think the older you get, the fewer people in your social circle want to go out to see shows. So, you know, I think it's, I think it is really hard, uh, to be in a band later in life. If, uh, if you don't have like a few notches on your belt, you know, so that's, it is kind of one of the things I empathize with people over because I, I can see it being, a real struggle to try and get your 40 year old friends to come out and see your new band yeah absolutely without any kind of you know notoriety or anything at all just like hey we're starting a band come check it out instead of hey this is this is this guy from this place and this guy from this place i mean like with with sumac too it's kind of like a, a super group is, is as you know relatively because it's got you know aaron you and uh um i forget the drummer's name from baptist's um, yeah, Nick. Nick, yes. It, that band is fantastic. And everyone was always talking about how good the drummer for Baptist is. And then Sumac came out. And I was like, man, this is the perfect, perfect blend. But I wanted to, to go back a little bit where you had mentioned that, that uh, with Botch that your band had cr- kind of broken up around you. Was that breakup something you weren't uh, on board with? Or or I never really heard the story on that. But um, was that something you wanted to continue going even though it was kind of f- – forming a vacuum of, of creativity or, uh, or how did that go? Uh, you know, it, it was kind of a slow decline, but bots would go through periods where we just weren't able to write songs, uh, because most songs would start off with a riff and then it was just jamming the song into existence. Like it wasn't a lot of planning or premeditated, uh, structuring. It's just like, is literally just jamming like four dudes in a room. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that kind of writing can be very difficult. It can be very inspired, uh, but it can be very difficult. And I think it's especially difficult if uh, you haven't really exercised the, the creative muscle. Uh, and I think with Botch, it was one of these things where we would go on tour and we would come home and we would you know, had to find a new practice space. And then, you know, some people lived in Seattle, some people lived in Tacoma and, you know, we would only be able to practice once every week or two. And, you know, every time we would set up, it was like starting over from scratch and just nothing would come out of it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, being a little older and having been in more bands and experienced that a lot more. And now it's one of those things where I look back and it's like, man, if we had just committed to like, practicing three 
times in one week. I'm sure by that third practice, we would have come up with something everyone was stoked on. But instead, it was like feeling defeated at practice, reconvening two weeks later, and like starting over from scratch. And so it was just, you know, a year and a half of not really coming up with much of anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people just getting more and more frustrated, people getting angry at each other. And it was, I think it was one of the things where everyone kind of knew it was coming, but I think there was this desire to do one more record and do one more sort of round of U.S. and European touring on it and then maybe calling it. Um, but at that point, Dave was, you know, had a pretty good design job going and Minus the Bear was starting off. And I think, you know, once he kind of heard that attitude coming out of people, it was like, well, why would I invest all this time and energy and take time and energy away from these other projects if this has like a finite deadline so mm-hmm. he was just like you know i'm like i'm i want to see our obligations through you know record our last handful of songs and then be done with it and so you know it's it one of those things where uh i think everyone knew it was inevitable i think it came a little earlier than anticipated mm-hmm. but i also think like everyone knew it was coming so it wasn't it wasn't uh wasn't completely unexpected, but you know, it was also everyone's like first major band, and yeah, we've you know, been, been together for eight or nine years, and all of our lives were very closely bound together because of that and because how old we were. So it was, it was a you know, it was a still a rough breakup to experience, but you know, everyone's still friends, and I still am in constant contact with all of them, so. One thing about being in a, in a band that people continue to like is that there's still business stuff that has to be tended to. So, yeah, like I, you never completely uh, divorce yourself from it. But sure. you know, I'm lucky that all those dudes are, are good dudes. So it's, it's you know, I feel lucky that they're still in my life. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. I mean, that's uh, that you couldn't hope for anything more. You know, especially out of something rough like that. I mean. And you've gone on to do some amazing things. And, and just like with, with these numbers of snakes, you were saying it was like that last practice. I'm going to go to practice one more time and try something different, you know. And, and uh, what's that? They say the, the definition of insanity yeah. is, is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Uh, yeah. Kind of broke that cycle, you know, of insanity and, and put some direction to it and, and did some amazing stuff. I remember, I think the. The last time I saw these arms are snakes was at a club called Loveland in Portland, and it was this weird show. You'll probably remember it because it was like a book fair and a show, and you guys I think were the only band. And there was this dude there. Uh, I couldn't find his name for the life of me before this interview, but he was he had some issues. He'd gone to prison, I think, for I don't know if he was doing something with a bomb or something. He he. I don't really remember, but there was literally like five people there, and this was yeah. This was it. Do you remember this show? Uh, oh yeah. Okay. Well, after it's funny after the after the show, you guys were talking to this dude. I don't remember his name, but uh, I was the one who took the picture of you guys with him because I was one oh, of the shit. old. I was one of the five or ten people there, and I was like, "Hey, you want me to take that picture?" And uh, I think it was your singer, but he's like, yeah, sure. And so I took that picture and I saw it on, I don't remember if it was MySpace or whatever. And I was like, oh yeah, I took that one. <laughs> but uh, that was awesome seeing you guys in that environment. Cause I'd seen you guys with a bunch of people and then seeing you guys with, you know, I was basically standing in the front of the stage with three or four other people and you guys played just as hard 
and were just as impactful without a crowd of people around. It was almost like watching a really intense practice, but it kind of affirmed everything for me that you guys, you know, this was what you do, like 100%. And that brings me to, uh, I'm really curious to know, your creative process as far as do you feel like a an uh almost like a uh a woven in need to create or is it more of kind of having the coolest job ever i mean do you feel do you do music because you have to like you feel it that that strongly or is it something that you got into that you keep doing because it's you know so much fun and and maybe it doesn't feel you know some people have to do it if that makes sense yeah i mean i I think I would say that uh, I, I think it, it was born out of a necessity to play music. I mean, I don't think, I don't know. It's going into playing music thinking it's going to be the coolest job ever is like the most coolest thing you could possibly do <laughs> because your odds of it actually being a cool job are really, really low. I mean, most people who pick up a guitar aren't going to go anywhere with it you know no matter how hard you try it's just you know it's just not in the cards for everyone you know there's Mm -hmm. so many factors and so many variables so anyone that's like picking up a guitar and thinking like i'm going to go somewhere with this is like What's going on, guys? This is Dewey. I want to tell you about some new releases coming up from Equal Vision Records. As you guys know, Equal Vision Records is my family, and so are these bands. I really want you to check these out. We've got Hot Water Music with their 10th studio album, Vows, out May 10th, featuring guest appearances by Dallas Green of City and Color, Thrice, The Interrupters, and Brendan and Daniel from Turnstile. See them on the 30th anniversary tour with Quicksand in the States in May and June and Europe in November. Hotwatermusic.com for more info. We also have Be Well with their new 7-inch, A Tap I Can't Turn Off, out now. First new music in two years from this band. This band is incredible, featuring members of Battery, Bane, Darkest Hour, and Fairweather. See them on tour with I Am The Avalanche in June. Equalvision.com for more info on that. And just your general information on Equalvision Records, you're always going to find something you like at Equalvision.com. Go there for vinyl and merch from all of your favorite bands. Check out Hot Water Music's new record and Be Well's new 7-inch now. What's going on, guys? This is Dewey from Peer Pleasure, and I want to tell you about our newest sponsor, DistroKid. DistroKid distributes your music across all online platforms. They are an amazing company. I've enjoyed working with them the last few weeks, and they're going to be with us for a while, and I really, really appreciate that. I love working with great companies, and DistroKid is one of them. Uh, They have an awesome thing they're doing right now called Splits. Now, if you're working as most people are online, doing collaborations with people from all over the country, all over the world, as easy as that is with the internet, uh, you want to get those people paid when you put that music online. And splits can do that. You can add an unlimited amount of collaborators to any track. You can change the splits at any time. You can add or remove collaborators at any time. You can see previous splits. 
And all your collaborators are going to have to do is sign up for a DistroKid membership, a DistroKid account, so they can get paid. And as always, DistroKid never takes a cut. You and your collaborators get 100% of the earnings in total. A couple other awesome things that they do is they set up an official artist YouTube channel. Uh, you can use Spotify Canvas, Synced Lyrics, promo card to promote your release on social media, a mini video for your socials as well. There's just so many awesome things about using DistroKid. And like I said, I don't advertise things I don't use, haven't signed up for. I have signed up for this. It is a breeze, literally a breeze. And you can get going right away. So definitely check out DistroKid. And I want to give you 30% off your first year's DistroKid membership at any level. That is distrokid.com slash VIP slash PPP for Peer Pleasure Podcast. Once again, that is 30% off your first year's DistroKid membership at any level. Distrokid.com slash VIP slash PPP. Go check out DistroKid right now. Distrokid.com slash VIP slash PPP for 30% off. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Dewey from Peer Pleasure, and I wanted to tell you about Premium Pleasure, our premium subscription service that's available now. Peerpleasure.supportingcast.fm is the website. There's three tiers, tier one, tier two, and tier three. Tier one is $5 a month. It gets you the ad-free experience. Tier two gets you access to the Peer Pleasure Passcast. It gets you access to the videos of the interviews. It gets you merch discounts. Tier three is $20 a month. That gets you all of that. It gets you the Passcast, gets you the video footage, discounts on merchandise, and monthly Zoom calls with myself and other guests. We're going to have all kinds of stuff in there for you. There's all kinds of stuff in there for you now. There is, uh, I believe, 30 to 40 videos of these interviews. There is uh, multiple episodes of the past cast. The past cast is a podcast that I'd started separately. That is me and another podcaster or me and a guest uh, discussing a deep dive into their favorite episode of Peer Pleasure. Um, so there's a bunch of those on there. So so-and-so and I would talk about the Chino Moreno episode. So-and-so and I would talk about uh, the Yvette Young episodes. And we would do a deep dive and tell where they came from, how we got the guest, stories of uh, that weren't discussed on the podcast or maybe weren't in there. Um, it's just another glimpse behind the curtain. So that's the big deal with this premium service is giving you a glimpse behind the curtain of how the podcast is made, gives you access to things I'm doing and things that we're doing with the show, um, gives you, you know, ad free stuff. It gives you just all kinds of of things that we could throw in there to help make it a valuable part of your month, because I put everything out there on this show. I put everything I have into this show. Um, so being able to give you guys that little bit of extra is a big deal to me and having your support is a big deal to me because if we don't support our artists and creatives, we're not going to have any left. So I appreciate it. Peerpleasure.supportingcast.fm is the website. Go sign up today and get some of this premium pleasure. I don't know. Let's just hang it up. <laughs> just, don't, just don't do it.
do it because you really want to do it. Do it because you want, you enjoy the process. Do it because even all the tedious stuff, like just setting up your equipment, like even that, like brings you joy in some capacity. Like answering emails has to like give you joy. Like spending hours in a van has to bring you joy. Like all of it has to like appeal to you because the actual like fun part. If like if you think the fun part is just going to be like playing in front of like hundreds of adoring fans, like you might not ever get that, you know. And then everything else is just going to be torture. Sure. So you, know, you have to do it because you really want to do it. Uh, you know, in terms of whether it's something I have to like play music every day, I would I would say no. But I, I feel like I have to do something creative every day. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I feel worthless and start crazy and, and depressed. So, um, yeah, in some capacity, I feel like I have to, there always has to be like forward momentum. And I always have to be working towards something, uh, in order to feel like a, like a whole person, you know, sure. if, uh, if like, you know, Russian circles and Sumac broke up and, you know, I had to, I had no band. I, I don't know what I would do. I mean, I would probably, continue making music in some capacity uh whether or not i would look for that to be something that like was a touring band uh i I don't really know but uh yeah i mean i think i think uh yeah i think you just have to you have to love music and love making it and then love everything else that goes along with it because it's it's not the skill set isn't just being able to write a cool guitar part it's like being able to like be a tolerable and tolerant person in the environment of being in a, in a band. Like mm-hmm. that's that's a whole other whole other skill, and it's it's a skill I didn't even I didn't even I don't even think I really had that for most of the time I was in Bosch. I think when I was in Bosch, I was probably a pretty annoying person to deal with, you know. <laughs> but fortunately, they were stuck with me, and you know, slowly learn how to not be a Selfish and self-absorbed and uh, and and lazy, you know, person in the band. You, you learn to pull your weight and, and you know do your share of the work, and that's you know that's what you got to do. Absolutely, and I guess uh, yeah. I mean that's that's kind of refreshing to hear too. That I mean. A lot of people, you know, say that it's, you know, music is, is all they know and they're born to play it. And, 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 but it's interesting to hear another perspective on it like that. And, and uh, you know, and, and you're being a creative person. I mean, you've got a lot of different uh, outlets. I mean, you, we were talking earlier on the email this, this morning about your book. Um, and I didn't even know about the book until uh, I was prepping for this interview because, I, or that you were, you know, uh, doing freelance journalism and things like that. Like, I want to talk a little bit about that, how the process came about, I guess the idea alone for, for writing a novel and the process of doing it yourself and then releasing it. I, I want you to kind of expand on that because I know a lot of people are, and including myself, are, are curious on that because the book, a lot of people are having a hard time finding it as I was too. And, and uh, like you said, it needs some edits and, and may be re-released. But um, what was the story on that? Uh, well, I guess... It all kind of stemmed back to uh, towards the end of These Arms Are Snakes and the beginning of Russian Circles, you know, touring with both bands. And uh, 
I was basically unemployable just because I was gone all the time. Uh, and, but the flip side of it is, you know, everyone dreams about, everyone that, you know, wants to be in a band dreams about like being able to do it for a living and that's cool. But the, the bummer is that you go on tour and you, you know, you're in this constant motion of being on, on the road and everything. And then you come home and it's completely stagnant. And, uh, some people, I think, are really good at dealing with that, but it, it was kind of driving me crazy. Uh, and I felt like kind of like a worthless human being. So I reached out to uh, an old co-worker of mine that had been hired at the local weekly in Seattle called The Stranger. Um, he'd been hired on as a music editor. And I basically just, you know, came up and just said, you know, if you, if you need an intern or if you just need anything, like I have tons of downtime and nothing to do and I just I want to be busy and so I very briefly interned but it turned more into being a freelance writer and a contributor to their music blog and uh, I wasn't a great writer uh, but I think I was informed enough and you know the a music blog is isn't high journalism or anything so it was you know it's good enough to fill that role so I just started doing a lot of music writing for them and then eventually for a little bit for the Portland Mercury which is sort of their sister magazine in Portland and then uh, you know just like little other things here and there mm-hmm. and, uh, and that was you know pretty exciting for a couple of years and then uh, it gets really kind of hard writing just about heavy music uh because there's only so many ways you can describe what a guitar sounds like or what a drum beat sounds like or, you know, what a stoner rock band sounds like without using the words Black Sabbath or Sludge, you know. It's like, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of, it's easy to, like, really get exhausted in, uh, in, in that sort of specific genre of music writing. So um, I just kind of decided I was going to start writing some, some short stories in the realm of fiction and you know that way I could you know remain uh, I don't know I guess it goes back to that exercising creative muscle thing you know I'd yeah. still be writing and you'd still like have that sort of forward momentum and still have uh, still have that sort of fresh in my mind but I would be working with a whole other vocabulary and a whole other writing style and a whole other framework and Kind of one of those things where I felt like they would both sort of feed off of one another. You know, like writing fiction would make writing about a very specific subject easier because all of a sudden it was, you know, everything was sort of focused on one very specific thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, at the same time, like, if I got tired of that, I'd have fiction to allow me to write whatever I wanted. So it was really more just sort of an outlet for, for writing. Uh, and eventually all the short stories kind of had a common theme and it turned into a novel. And then, you know, after three years, it's like, Oh fuck, I wrote a novel. And, uh, you know, I'm not like a, I'm not like a well-known writer, you know, or anything like that. I just, I 
publish a paragraph or two a week for small weekly. Uh-huh. Um, so I didn't really have any aspirations for getting it published. I did not even know how to go about getting something published. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just not visible enough of a person to get a literary agent and mm-hmm. all that. And, and I'm not even a confident enough writer to feel like it's worth uh, it's worth going through that process, you know? So, uh, for me, it was, it, it was just like, well, you know, I don't think Comet Bus sat around waiting for someone to, you know, publish his stories. You yeah. know, like, I don't think, uh, Alberian waited around for, you know, people to publish, you know, his stories. Uh, you know, all these like punk dudes just like put out zines and that was, that was their outlet. And, uh, like, well, I'm just, just going to treat it like a zine and just, do it myself and you know it's I don't I don't think it's a great novel (laughs) (laughs) primarily because I wrote it you know you know there was some uh, confusion with uh, the uh, the designers about when the uh, when the uh, final edit was going to go through so there didn't even go through a final round of editing so there are like typos in there and things like that so (laughs) it's by no means like by no means perfect you know but uh you know, like, I hate saying it's good enough for punk rock, but I've kind of felt like, yeah, it's good enough for punk rock. Fuck it. I'll just put it out and I'll print up a couple hundred and it'll be a thing that exists for a couple hundred people. And that's about the extent of what I felt like it really needed, you know. And then, yeah. you know, I ended up doing a, a, a second printing of another couple hundred. And then when those ran out, <clears throat> I was, you know, glad that it was out there and, and glad that. I, I had that process and had gone through it, but uh, I was excited to work on something that was, uh, I don't know, had, had a clear vision from the very beginning. You know, so I have a new novel I'm working on and, uh, you know, I went into it having a bit more experience and a bit more of an, a, an idea on the front end of what I was trying to accomplish. So uh-huh. hopefully this one will be a little better, but, I'll probably still just self-publish it anyway. So. Sure. Well, is there? I think it's cooler to. Have, I think it's cooler to have like a you know like a an artifact than than to have like a thing that like lives permanently in the in the ether of the internet. So it's you know it's, I like having it as like a tactile thing that you hold and, and not having it be uh you know like available for the Kindle or audible or anything like that I, I want it to be very limited and i want people to have to find it and you know i want it to be more of a i don't know like a like a souvenir or a talisman or something some sort of object that people give a shit about rather than you know trying to get it into everyone's hands that wants one yeah that's that's really interesting that's a really cool uh take on it i mean it's almost like a treasure not a treasure hunt but when you stumble across it, or you're like, "Whoa, hey, I didn't know about this," or maybe they're seeking it out, and and uh, like I was saying, it was it was hard to find. Like, and I was going to ask you if you, I know, like uh, JP from Three One G did like two books, I think, and one of them was on the Kindle. And I was going to ask about since it's it might be cheaper to do that, but I I like your take on on uh, you know keeping it as a physical copy. I mean, is there a is there a I guess a different aspect of your life or, or something in your, your socialization that, that writing stems from versus music, like a, a different place you go 
Um, you're saying, you know, you know, you like to write fiction cause you can write about something, you know, maybe specific, but you can kind of change it a little bit or, or I guess mask it or kind of turn it into what you want. Um, does that stem from anything in your life specifically, or is it just kind of something you started doing? I mean, I think some of it's just stumbling into it, but I think, I think a lot of it too is, uh, it's, I don't know, it's something that you can do uh, on your own. It's like a solitary endeavor. And uh, I mean, that has its drawbacks as well because you, you work in isolation and so you can devote all this time to a thing and not really have any perspective on whether or not it's good. Mm-hmm. Whereas opposed to like if you're writing music with a band, you know, there's varying opinions and you're bouncing ideas off of people. And even if you're like a solo artist, you're you're probably at least like, demoing it and playing it for other people or playing the song out live and things like that. And with writing, there's none of that. You just work in a vacuum and at the end of it, you just have to foist this thing upon people and make someone read it, which is, you know, another weird thing. Like I feel bad making someone listen to one of my albums, but like making someone read a whole book is like, yeah, here, I can take three days out of your life to like <laughs> read all this shit I wrote down. Like <laughs> It's like jokes on you, asshole. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. You could really having someone like hand you a demo is, is uh, having someone hand you a demo is always like, ooh, okay, that's an assignment. But having someone hand you a book is like, fucking for real? Like, what is this fucking school? You know? So yeah, it's it, uh, it's yeah, it's but you know, I think the the fact that it's my own thing and it belongs only to me and it's you know, it's, I think that's part of the enjoyment of it and you know it's it all kind of goes back to just having a lot of weird downtime between tours where it's like what else are you gonna do you know it's like i can write riffs in my apartment and stuff like that but it's a uh, you know it's a little harder with russian circles because it's you tend to write more around guitar than we do around bass so it's, I, you know, I don't want to like write 20 bass lines that i know aren't going to go anywhere so it's like what am i going to do write a book I guess yeah. so, a lot of, I think it's driven you know kind of by what I was saying it's like I don't have to write music every day but I have to make something otherwise I feel really fancy so sure does that stem from anything does that stem from you know being a military kid and just go 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 all the time and, and being ready to roll or or do you think it's just who you are uh, I don't know if it's like military but I, I don't know I think uh, even at a young age, I kind of realized that I was happier if I was busy. You yeah. Know? I think uh, around the time I was nine or ten, you know, I would just come home from school and watch TV for a few hours and then play video games and then go to bed. And, you know, at, at nine, I was already just like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, <laughs> this is <Yeah>. depressing. <laughs> like, no, 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 like... I'm just like a pasty white kid in Hawaii and I'm not doing anything, you know, and it, it turned into, into skateboarding and, and playing in bands. Cause that was the thing that like got me out of the house and made me do things that, you know, felt like self-improvement in, in some capacity. So sure. I think, uh, I think, you know, I'm not, I'm not someone that like, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to make a, a statement on, on mental health or anything like that, but I, I, I do feel like, like the yeah being creative is like a cure for being depressed you know if you can 
muster up the, the energy to like remain active. It, it makes you happier, you know? So yeah, I think, I think there's just a part of me that like really is scared of being bored and is really scared that boredom will lead to being de- depressed. So it's like, I have to, have to stay busy. Have to keep rolling. That's a, that's a good take on it. I mean, I know it seems like it's kind of interesting because you're talking, you know, being afraid of boredom and depression. Some people take on this kind of ethic to escape their depression. Have you ever been, you know, in, have you gone into that depression state or are you just worried that it's going to happen to you if you, if you do slow down? I feel like it's, well, you know, like everyone, every human being knows what depression is. Like everyone lives through it. Sure. Um, You know, I don't, I don't think I'm someone that's, I don't want to talk about like me having depression because I don't think what I experience is it parallels like people that are like truly dealing with depression. You know, yeah, I think. clinical, like I, the severe. Yeah, yeah. You know, like a like a David Foster Wallace described depression as being like a a burning building. You know, and like real depression is when the pain of the fire is so hot that the only escape is leaping out the window, you know, mm-hmm. and like taking your life. And it's like that, that kind of depression is like not something I have experienced. You know, my depression is more just the general sort of existential, like what am I doing with my life mm-hmm. kind of depression. And that's, you know, I think that's a pretty universal thing. And for me, it's just like, well, I can either sit around and, wondering what I'm doing with my life or I can like do something with my life. So I might as well do something. And that's, yeah, I don't know. That's, I guess what my work ethic stems around. Sure. Well, it's inspiring for sure. I mean, your body of work is, is just top notch. I mean, from, from, uh, you know, my own listening to what you've done and, and I really want to check out the book when, when it does come out again, or, or if it doesn't, I'll check out the second book, but, um, I can't speak to that side of it, but, but musically, um, you know, live show wise, like just it's pure experience through, through sound. I mean, you've really got an extensive catalog of very, very excellent material. And, you know, I appreciate, you know, all that you've put out and, and the work you put in. I mean, you know, you put out some really good stuff that may not have come out if you didn't put in some of that hard work. Maybe it would have ended like, you know, uh, like you said, if you didn't go to that practice with something on board, those records wouldn't have come out and, and, uh, you know, I know you guys have changed a lot of people's uh, views on things musically, you know, uh, socially. Like, man, it's just a, a really cool uh, chance to get to talk to you for this time. And, and uh, I really appreciate um, you taking the time out. And, and uh, I know my listeners are going to be super stoked when this comes out, um, you know, and, and uh, I really appreciate that, Brian. Yeah, th- thanks, Dewey. I, you know, I, I appreciate the interest and the. Uh the yeah, giving me a platform to talk about myself. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I know, and, and uh, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you one more thing, and and uh, you know, we can always c- cut this part out if you if you'd like. I I just really feel I I remember when we were first emailing. Um, I had mentioned, and you mentioned, you know, uh, having you know recorded conversations kind of felt strange and and uh you know having things on the internet and uh i now i now know with like with the book and things you like to have things kind of that are tangible and not just you know out everywhere um but i had mentioned i I believe you guys toured with the fear for the march of flames guys before um yeah uh and you know adam 
And I had mentioned yeah. uh, that when he came out uh, being openly gay, we, we, we talked a lot about it on his episode. And he gave some advice and, and kind of his thoughts on things. And I don't I, I have a hard time bringing this up because it's something I feel is really important, especially having a listenership of people um, that may be struggling with who they are. Um, and I really, if you don't feel comfortable doing it, I totally understand. But I wanted to know if you had some advice for other uh, listeners, fans of yours, um, that may either be openly gay or struggling with that conflict in their in themselves, especially nowadays, 2017, with so many people. It's, it's a very polarizing subject, again, I feel. And, and I was wondering if you would give some advice um, to those out there struggling, um, you know, that have come from where you come from, um, you know, to kind of put them at ease or, or at least let them know from someone they admire, you know, that things will be okay. Cause I really feel that's important. Um, but like I said, if you don't feel comfortable doing that, I totally understand. That's why I saved this part for the end. So we could cut it off if we need to. I don't know. I, I don't mind at all. I mean, okay. that's, I didn't even know. I didn't know Adam was gay until he mentioned it. I was like, "What?" I I didn't either. He posted an Instagram <laughs> post uh, for Pride, and it said, uh, "I love my friends." Um, you know, all my friends came to Pride with me being the only uh, person who was gay, and I was like, "Adam's gay." And then, so when I talked to him on the episode, I was like, "Man, I I don't expect you to call everyone and say, hey, this is what's going on.'" But I couldn't believe that I had not heard it until that Instagram post. And uh, yeah. that kind of stemmed it, you know. And I know, um, you know, it's a subject because I'm not uh, homosexual. So I feel kind of strange bringing it up as, hey, do you want to say something to these people about who you are? But I got a lot of responses from that email or that, that episode thanking uh, Adam for, for being, you know, saying what he did which helped them out because he's someone they look up to, um, you know, whether it's just through music or whatever, it means a lot more, I think, than someone on the street saying, Hey man, it's gonna be all right. Or, you know, if that makes sense, I feel, I feel out of place talking about it, I guess. Uh, but you know, is there something that maybe has gotten you through things or, um, some advice you could throw out there to, to someone that listening right now that could be struggling with their, their sexuality? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think, I think, yeah, that, that could be like a whole other hour's worth of conversation. I, right I thought there. about it, but I didn't want to go there <laughs> if it was going to be something like, hey, yeah, no, I don't think so. Yeah, I, I guess I would just say that I think, uh, you know, I, I feel like there's, it's tough because there's a lot of pressure, I think, uh, from the world to be open and to be out, you know, I, I definitely, uh, when I was in high school, you know, knew I was gay, but really didn't want to be gay. And, uh, you know, felt, uh, just felt like it was just going to make life really complicated and mm-hmm. I didn't want to deal with it. And, uh, but at the same time, you know, I was, uh, this, kid that was listening to punk music so i was listening to you know like that kennedy's talking about like being a chicken shit conformist or whatever and you know just like everything in sort of punk mind frame is like you know wave your freak flag like don't give a fuck what 
what the the cultural norm or the modern paradigm is like be yourself like that's the whole beauty of it like you can do whatever the fuck you want so you know i think punk added some some pressure in terms of like not being proud of being closeted but i think it was also the thing that was very empowering because it's like yeah like you can literally do whatever the fuck you want as long as you're not hurting other people and like maybe that makes you even cooler because that makes you 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 know it makes you an individual as opposed to just being the person that does you know what every other cookie cutter you know person does like be whoever the fuck you want like that's fucking cool so uh yeah you know i think that really helped me feel comfortable with my sexuality but it also made me feel pressure to be out and be honest and, and be be real about who i was so you know i think the the best advice i could give to someone that's struggling with their their orientation or their identity or or whatever uh you know their issue is in terms of their their orientation or, or identity is just you know learn to be comfortable with it and you know you'll be happier when you're you're out and you're open and you're honest with yourself and with other people but you know at the same time don't let don't let people pressure you into coming out before it's something that you're comfortable with you know i i, I waited until i was a financially independent adult to come out to my family just because i didn't want to feel like i had to change any of my, you know, life choices because I was still, you know, living under my parents' roof or whatnot. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like I, I was in the closet for a while, and you know, I was even in the closet just because I was like, well, maybe, maybe as I get older, you know, things will change. And you know, it's I think it's totally fine to be to be cautious with that kind of stuff. You know, so sure. I don't I don't think young people should feel pressured in that regard. But, um, yeah, but, you know, you'll be happier when you're out, you know, and if you're worried about the environment that you're in, get out of that environment, you know, it, you'll be happier. And, you know, it's, it's a thing where when I came out, I was like, you know, I don't want this. I don't want to be gay, but I guess I'm gay and I'm not going to like fight it and be ashamed of who I am. And that was my attitude you know, my early twenties, but I think every, every gay person I know, the older they get, the more they're like, dude, why would I want anything other than this? Like, this is so much better than, yeah. like, <laughs> than the alternative of being like a straight, like being a straight person sounds so boring. Like, ugh, there's so many like rules and expectations. Like if you're gay, you can do whatever the fuck you want. Like it's way more liberating than like living a lie. So just, do it. It might hurt for a while. It might suck for a while, but like you'll be happier in the long run. Like do it when you're comfortable, but do it. So I guess that's my my advice. That's awesome, Brian. And I appreciate you you giving that advice because I know a lot of people you know really appreciate that. I don't know if you heard the the episode with Adam, but but he when he came out to his dad, he he got all serious and. uh He's on the phone with him, and his dad's outside doing something, and he's talking to me. He's like, Dad, i got to tell you something really important. And his dad's like, yeah, what is it? And he's like, Dad, I'm gay. And uh, 
it was just quiet for a minute. And he's like, dad, are you there? Are you, are you okay with this? And his dad's like, no, no. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry, dad. I'm sorry. And just like totally crushed him. And in the next second, his dad's like, wait, wait, what were you saying, son? I was talking to somebody. And he's like, oh, my God, the, the, one of the biggest moments of my life just happened and you weren't even listening. And then he told him again and he's like, oh, yeah, cool. Whatever makes you happy. But it was just we cracked up about it because it was a hilarious story. But, yeah, it's it's uh, it's awesome to get someone else's perspective. And, and uh, you know, I'm sure it'll mean a lot to to someone out there. And, and uh Brian, I really, really had a blast talking to you, man. I want to let you get back to your evening and, and uh, don't want to hold you up forever. But um, like I say, I really appreciate, you know, your contribution to music, uh, the inspiration you've given me and a lot of other people. Um, and just keep doing what you're doing, man. You're, you're doing things right, I think. And, and uh, you know, I've, I've really had a good time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Joanne. I appreciate the, uh, the talk. Awesome, bud. Well, hopefully, I'll see you in Portland next time you're you're playing with anyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, are is is I've I've seen some things kind of around it. These arms are snakes. They're not getting back together, right? As far as like a reunion or anything like that, or is that something that may be in the works? No, not really. I mean, it's it's a it's a a thing where uh, we, you know, I I left that band pretty abruptly. Okay. Um, because of circumstances at the time. Sure. And uh, we had a few things lined up, and when I basically told the dudes that I didn't want to commit to doing a bunch of touring and another album cycle, mm-hmm. uh, but that I wanted to see things through and, you know, do, like, a final tour if people were up for it and all that, the, the other guys were just like, you know what, let's just, like, cancel everything. So uh, everything kind of got canceled with the idea that, like, we would rebook something down the line that would be like a proper farewell then uh it just it just didn't happen just because like think things with that band were kind of fucked up towards the end and okay there's a lot of a lot of a lot of personal shit that kind of had to get figured out and sure like a lot of yeah things like things i didn't want to keep going because things weren't functioning well with people and yeah. i didn't want to enable things going worse uh my apologies for being big but no i i absolutely understand what you're saying (laughs) and it's not uh, something you just speak of you know yeah i just felt like it'd be better it wasn't like a very yeah it wasn't it wasn't a healthy environment so it you know i wanted the band to have proper closure but uh yeah it needed to happen at the right time and uh you know, life got away from everybody, and now it's like, you know, oh, God, what? Yeah. Seven years later, or whatever, and it's like, oh, fuck, we haven't done those, like, farewell shows yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, at this point, it would be a reunion, but it would, it would in, in our minds, it would just be, a, a, you know, constantly postponed farewell shows. So it might, it might happen, but, you know, I live in New York, and Chris lives in Texas, and everyone's. Yeah. That much older. Yeah. But who knows? Sure. Maybe, but probably not. Okay. Well, I had, yeah, I'd seen some rumblings and uh, I think some new merch or something. I was just curious on that uh, as a side note. But, uh, man, I, I really appreciate you coming on, Brian. I'll let you go. Um, 
but yeah, good luck to you in the future, man. And hopefully I'll see you when you're in Portland next. Cool. Thanks, Jerry. All right, brother. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Brian Cook from These Arms Are Snakes, Botch, Russian Circles, and Sumac. Brian Cook is a fantastic dude. I had a blast talking to him. He was very gracious with his time, very gracious with what he talked about. Um, I hope uh, everyone got something from the episode, uh, as did I, and enjoyed his take on things. And, uh, you know, if there's someone out there struggling with who you are, sexuality, uh, orientation, definitely, you know, everything's going to be all right, man. Just do your thing. You know, as long as you're not hurting anybody, what does it matter? You know, you just need to be happy and, and uh, stay true to yourself. And, and I, I think that's a good message Brian put across. And, uh, you know, it's sometimes you just need to hear it from someone else. And so definitely, definitely be yourselves out there. That's why we're doing this show, because it's something I want to do. And if you guys like it, it's awesome. But, you know, even if no one listened to the show, I'd probably still do it just because I enjoy it so much. So, you know, you got to be who you are. You got to do what you do. So definitely take that with a grain of salt. But, you know, if you're not hurting anyone, do your thing, man. Anyways, so thank you to Brian Cook. Uh, had a blast. Next week, we have a big episode. Mr. Kurt Ballou from Converge is coming on the show, and uh, we're going to have a blast talking to him. Uh, he's been someone I've wanted to chat with for a very long time and been a big fan for a while. So uh, without further ado, we are at PeerPleasurePodcast.com. We are on Instagram. We are on Twitter. Definitely hit us up on there, PeerPleasurePod at gmail.com. Check us out on there. Send us your comments, your guest uh, guest requests, and your uh, you know any concerns you have. Rate and subscribe to the show on iTunes. That really helps us out. Uh, that's one of the biggest things you can do to help the show. And speaking of helping the show, our Patreon is launching August 28th, 2017. The Pleasure Seekers Club is coming to you August 28th, 2017. And we hope to see you guys on there. We're going to be posting more content about that club, uh, maybe a preview of the site. And then also we're going to do a special episode, I think, here while I'm at Podcast Movement in uh, Anaheim with uh mike mowry to talk about just that the patreon so uh guys thank you so much for tuning in week after week really love you guys really appreciate you and uh we'll see you next week we'll see you on the radio This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today 
such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday.